I'm the only writer who wrote for both Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5, and I'm also the only writer who wrote for both Smurfs and Friday the 13th series. <laughs> <laughs> Captain's Pod, Stardate 81, 11, 23.2. Welcome aboard the Starships Enterprise, and thank you for joining us as we take a brief shore leave from the world of cinema sins to explore the universe of Star Trek. I'm your Captain Ian Whittington, and with me as always, she claims to be a science fiction writer from the 1950s, but no one believes her, it's Ambassador Danae, who will not understand that reference at all. Uh, nope, nope, but I, people do think I'm a vampire, so, you know, I have been around for a really long time, and you never know, I could have written all kinds of things you didn't you, know You've about. done so much, you've now forgotten about it. Now, uh-huh. we are not alone on the bridge of the Sinterprise today. If you've watched a genre cartoon between the year 2000 and 1941, there's a good chance that he wrote on it. It's time to make first contact with the head of Space Command. Joining us from far beyond the stars, it's Mark Zakree. Hi, guys. Glad to be here. Yay. Hello. Welcome aboard, sir. How are you? Yes, I'm very, very well. It's, uh, it's a thrill to be with both of you and uh, the best part of my day. Yes. Okay. So usually, uh, Captain Ian wants to know what you would want from the replicator. Mm, if you could order one thing right now. Yeah. Well, the first thing that came to my mind was uh, Robbie the Robot, you know, so, you know, from Forbidden Planet, yes. that would be... Uh, I can't believe we good. haven't, we don't already have one of those. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, we when do I, now. When I, was, when I was in high school, one of my friends, Fred Barton, made a completely accurate, full-size <sighs> Robbie the Robot, and he's still doing that all these years later. He makes them for a living. That's and, amazing. Uh, and he makes full-size time machines, you know, from the George Pell movie. Yes. Also, stuff. I mean, it's a, he didn't he didn't have to grow up at all. It was, oh, that's uh, beautiful. Nice. That's one of my favorite projects with my dad. We built a full-size TARDIS from Doctor Who, wow. and the intent that's was great. to put tools and stuff inside it, but we just couldn't bring ourselves yeah. to do it. It was too yeah. it was too perfect, so we just sat in the garden. <laughs> well, the funny thing about Doctor Who about the TARDIS, of course, is that in '63 it was like supposed to blend in as a police box, yep. so that it wouldn't look like. You know, it's like a phone booth. You yeah. know, it's anything, right? And now, of course, people look at that and just go, "It's a TARDIS." It's, you know? yeah. but... it's like, what do you mean, police box? Like, it's it's surpassed the thing that it was imitating. It's beautiful right. when that happens. Yeah. It's so great, much like the Enterprise, which has kind of outgrown the real Enterprises that we have, which is that's amazing. Yes. Well, if yeah. you for some reason don't know who Mark is, I am going to just give a snippet of his IMDb, which is just. Incredible, starting with the incredible Hulk animated TV show, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, Smurfs, the Biscuits, Super Friends, the Mighty Orbits, they get along, the pole position, the little Centurions, Galaxy High School, Bionic 6, Captain Power, the real Ghostbusters, oh my goodness, Friday the 13th, the series, something Star Trek The Next Generation, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, James Bond Jr. It goes on and on. What an incredible career. Yes. Well, and you didn't even get to a space precinct or a sliders, any of that stuff. I, so it uh, just it keeps going. It's incredible. I worked with both Gene Roddenberry and Jerry Davis. I mean, that's pretty. Uh, that's you know, that's some yeah. that's some bucket list stuff that a lot of people and will never Jerry, be able to do. And Jerry Anderson, Jerry Anderson as well. Oh, as Jerry well. Anderson. Oh, what did you do with Jerry Anderson? Because that's what my dad oh, would yeah. absolutely be really space, interested in. Space precinct, space precinct. Oh, of course, it was. It was. Yes, it was a live action show with the audio animatronic alien heads. I wrote, I think I wrote four of those. That's and, amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah. Pretty amazing. So, and I grew up with Supercar and Fireball XL5 and all that. Oh, stuff, so. Thunderbirds, Captain Scarlet. Oh. Yeah. Did yeah. you know you wanted to write early on in your life? Well, or... you know, I was, well, I was a science fiction fan as long back as I can remember. 
Um, my favorite book when I was seven is, is behind you. Behind me, of course. Farmer in the Sky by Robert Heinlein. Oh, there wow. you go. And uh, so I, uh, the, the real turning point was when I was 10 and Star Trek debuted, the original Star Trek. And it was amazing. It just like kind of popped my head open and poured all this yes. cool stuff in. And, and it was, I was so thrilled by it. It was so revolutionary that <clears throat> I recorded at 10 years old, I recorded every episode on reel-to-reel -reel audio tape in case it never aired again. Yes. Because we didn't have VCRs. We didn't have any of that stuff. And so... Uh, you did and, the first uh, audio book. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. And, uh, and so then, uh, yeah. And so I was, an, I was an artist and a writer growing up. And uh, my degree is in painting, sculpture, and graphic arts from UCLA. I had gallery shows of my art when I was a teenager. But by the time I sold my first short story at 19, I knew I wanted to be a writer, particularly a writer, producer, and TV. And, uh, you know, and off we went. That's so, incredible. Off you went. What part yeah. of the world were you living in at that time? I was very lucky. I grew up in Los Angeles. Ah. So um, my parents divorced when I was three, and my mom had a variety of husbands and boyfriends and so forth. And one of her boyfriends, uh, when Star Trek was on the air when I was 10, he said, I have a surprise for you. And he took me to this apartment, knocked on the door, and Nichelle Nichols <gasps> opened the door. It was her apartment. Oh, that's amazing. And she, uh, gave me a signed photo of herself as Uhura. It's when the show was on. And um, she gave me one of the signed scripts, her signed script. All the Uhura lines are circled because that's how she memorized them. So I was a very smart, I was a very smart kid. So I said to her when she gave me the script, she said, I said, uh, do you have any more of these? And she reached, <laughs> her waist, she reached, her, reached in her wastebasket and pulled out five more scripts from five different episodes. So I still have those. Oh, and, that uh, is phenomenal. Yeah. That is did gold. You, did you read those and then sort of oh, get yeah. an idea of how then to yes. write a script? Yes, very much so. And, uh, uh, and ironically, 50 years later, when we were shooting Space Command, I got to have Nichelle Nichols in Space Command. So Aww. I went to her house for the shoot. Oh, she was wow. wonderful. And I brought the scrapbook I kept when I was 10 years old that had the signed photo from her and the letters she wrote me and all these articles about her. And we sat flipping through it, you know, all these years what later. What an incredible way to come full circle. That's yeah, really, really great. special because we're at a, yeah. a sad point in history where all of these people are expectedly passing away yes. and no longer with us yeah. so that's that's yeah. so so special yes and it, wow yes. that's amazing oh, and, and, and then i got to go to the original star trek set for the last episode they ever shot and uh turnabout intruder what an episode and, uh, did you like sneak in or no, were you like welcomed no, i'm i was such a trekkie that first of all when when they were going to cancel star trek after season two i actually was there at nbc with my little yes. sign, at, you know a little 10 year old kid <laughs> That's you know, we amazing. Got the third season, we got the third season. So everyone and everyone around me knew I was a huge fan. So both my stepmom, my dad's uh, second wife, and a friend of mine who was a college student who'd written, who'd interviewed Gene Roddenberry for the school paper, they both wrote to Star Trek and said, "There's this kid who just loves Star Trek. Can he come visit the set?" This was the last <gasps> episode they ever shot. If I had been a week later, oh, no. okay, I got right under the wire, and um, so. It was a turnabout intruder. I got to see Shatner. I got to see uh, McCoy. I got yeah. to sit in the chair and stand on the transporter. See the light bulb that was screwed <gasps> oh in. Oh, my top. goodness. <laughs> oh, my no, it's not a light bulb. No, no, it. it's not a light bulb. It's magic. It's a real transporter, okay? Yes. Don't spark, you ruin please. that for me. <laughs> yeah. I, remember being, I remember being on the engineering set, and there was like this wire, and then the, the engineering supposedly went back forever. But it was forced perspective, so it was actually very narrow. Oh, 
that's a lot smaller than I thought. Oh, <laughs> and, uh, how clever. It might be the only 10-year-old that was disappointed by the Enterprise. <laughs> no, it was wonderful. It no, was I bet. That's incredible. It was like going through the mirror, you know? Wow. And that's one amazing. of the parts was uh, one of the stagehands said, last show of the season, and under her breath, Majel Barrett, who was playing Nurse Chapel, uh-huh. she, she, she muttered under her breath, and I was the only one who heard, she said, last show ever. And of course, <laughs> that wasn't true. She, oh, you know, God. she went on to get her voice on Next Gen. And when yeah. I did the Star Trek Voyages episode with George Takei, I went to her house and recorded her as the computer voice. Oh, beautiful! So, because uh, that's so one of the rare it. side projects that kind of got a paramount. Okay, you can do it without yes. quote unquote being canon and whatnot. That's a really special yes. position to be in. It was amazing. It was amazing because I got to direct George Takei as Sulu, and in fact, my YouTube channel, Mister Sci-Fi. Uh, we have that entire episode. It was nominated mm-hmm. for the Hugo. It was nominated for the Hugo and the Nebula, and it won the TV Guide Awards. So it's great. Uh, I mean, if it came out like today in 2023, it would just yeah. be canonized. It would just be yeah. a thing yeah. that is out there. It's such a yes. what a, a pocket of time to release it in. It's so interesting. It was great. What well, was the last time that George played Sulu? It was the last time that Grace Lee Whitney played Yeoman Rand, mm. and the last time that Major Barrett was the computer voice. So I mean, amazing. there's so much Star Trek I want to get into, and I want to talk about Space Command as well. But I, lock I've in, we're going to be here all day. I've got to <laughs> ask, like, how was how was George Takei? Because I, I've seen him at conventions and stuff. He seems like a man that is just absent of ego and just loves being in Star Trek and just feels like an incredible person to be with. So what what it was what was it like directing him? He's an amazing man, an amazing man. He was he was always one of my favorite characters on Star Trek and they never gave him the great Sulu episode he deserved. Never. And um so when I found out that there were these fans making their own Star Trek episodes, I said, well I can utilize that platform. They were getting more viewers than Enterprise was getting at the time on UPN. Oh, ouch. And, um, ouch. But true. It rebuilt all the original Enterprise sets. So um, I reached out to my friend Michael Reeves, who'd also written for Star Trek The Next Generation. He's an Emmy winner for Batman. And uh, uh, I said, you want to write? He'd come up with this great Sulu episode in the 70s when they were going to bring back Star Trek as Phase 2. Phase 2, yeah. And uh, I said, let's do this. And uh, I contacted the boys in upstate New York where the sets were. And I can upgrade all your equipment. And they said, great. And so we spent six months building the team. And I I went to George's house and pitched in this and I said you know you're a great actor I've seen you in many things beyond Star Trek and um you never got the great Sulu episode you deserved and this is it and I I typed up the outline as a little precy and I said read this you've got to tell me right now if you're going to do it and uh he read it and he said yeah I'm in and then his agent called and said well we can't commit to George doing this until uh the script is written and I said you don't understand if George doesn't do it we won't there is no script yeah. we're not going to George was the only one to, to play Sulu, yeah. of course. Right. And, uh, and so then he, he, he spent months lifting weights. He lost 15 pounds for the role. Wow. Amazing. Wow. Phenomenal shot. She did not look at his age at all. And uh, uh, he was great to work with. And then we built the, um, his ship, the Excelsior, mm-hmm. here in L.A. And, uh, and shot those scenes oh, here. Wow. And Kristen Moses played his daughter. That was her first TV role. Now she's been starring in A Million Little Things on ABC. She's phenomenal. She's going to be in Space Command as well, as she actually already is. We've already shot oh, some amazing. of her scenes. That's, that's incredible. So that's so fun. Well, that's an, yeah. that's an excellent segue into what I guess, is it fair to say, is the culmination of Mark Scott's decree. Like, this feels like your real passion uh, project yes. and that's Space Command. Um, yes. Let's dive in. Tell us all about it. Well, you know, it's, a, it's really amazing because Star Trek shaped mm. me. Star Trek, three shows made me who I am and made me want to be a writer. 
uh, which were The Outer Limits, The Twilight Zone, and Star Trek, the original versions of those mm -hmm. three. And I wrote a book about The Twilight Zone called The Twilight Zone Companion to learn how to write and produce television. But, the, but also what gave me the first idea to be a writer-producer was The Making of Star Trek by Gene Roddenberry and Stephen Whitfield, which came out when I was 13. And because I never read a book about a TV show before. And so, so I began this great journey. I was writing for TV by the time I was 22 or 23, started writing The Twilight Zone book at uh, 21. And um, had this amazing career journey, writing for all the studios and networks and hundreds of hours of TV. And uh, but then uh, for 30 years, I've been running this roundtable of writers, directors, actors, producers, anyone in film, TV or books, um, just to create a compassionate Hollywood. We've been meeting every Thursday here in L.A. and via Zoom. And we have thousands of members around the world. It was just to make Hollywood the way That's I want. That's amazing. Yeah. And because Hollywood has such a reputation for being just, you know, cutthroat. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And filled with assholes and all that stuff. And that's true. But there's also, <laughs> there's but also there's more. Yeah. Yes. There's a Hollywood of good people who write from the heart, who are creating work of meaning, like Roddenberry, like Rod Sterling, like um, I wrote a book with Guillermo del Toro novel. Mm. Guillermo's one of those, of course. And um, so I thought, okay. So I created this round table. And a few years ago, I noticed that all the science fiction in film and TV at the time was very dark, very dystopic. Mm. And it was sort of like saying the future is going to suck and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's not any kind of message to send. And so I wanted to do something that was inspiring, like Star Trek had inspired me when I was a kid. But <clears throat> through my, and a lot of my friends are showrunners and they said, let's team up, let's walk this in, let's get a pilot deal. But, you know, I could have been cut, cut off at script, I could have been cut off at pilot, or, or the suits, the network suits, could have given me notes that would erect it. Yeah. You know, right. no, too, too, too light and too nice. You have to make it dark. We've yeah. got to have some. Who's the enemy? Yeah. Or, or they would just say make it, make it stupid. They wouldn't say it like mm. that. But yeah. yeah. I, I was actually in the room with the head of the Sci-Fi Channel when he said, "You know, I tried to watch that Babylon Five, and I just don't get it. And and I tried to watch Sliders, and I don't understand it. Mm. You know." And I thought to myself. You should not be running this network. This hurts. That's painful to hear. Like, why are you yeah. in this job? Because because they just plug a regular executive yeah. in yeah. thing, whether or not he's simpatico with yep. the genre. This yeah. is years ago. It's no longer it's no longer the same person. Yeah. But um, but the point was, I didn't say you're an idiot and you shouldn't have this job because mm -hmm. he was writing the checks, right? <laughs> yeah. So smart. If if, yeah. And I've been very lucky. I've had I've worked with great executives. I, my, I have a body of work that I'm very proud of, but Space Command, I really wanted to have autonomy. And, uh, and you know, and um, I agree with Joe Straczynski that if you're going to, you know, want your work to come out the way you want it to come out, you have to step up, you have to take power and, mm -hmm. and responsibility. So through my roundtable, I've been hearing all about crowdfunding. And I, <clears throat> I never raised money before. I just worked for the studios and the networks. So I thought, well, let's give this a try. So we set a campaign, Kickstarter campaign, our first one. And it, our goal was $75,000 to raise in two months. And wow. we, raised that, we raised that in three days. And then we went on. And over the course of that two months, we raised $221,000. And um, over the last few years, between several Kickstarter campaigns and also selling investment shares for 7,500 bucks each, where the investors get a portion of my producer's, producer's net profits, I've um my fans have given me four million dollars. That's and incredible. So, that's just that's incredible. So great. Amazing. Amazing. So now we have a studio. 
with three sound stages, two small ones and one big one. And we've. Oh, we're, that's mind boggling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. what, what a leap. We're just finishing shooting hour six of the 12 hour season of Space Command. We have five more series waiting in the wings that I'm co creating with um, the creators of Farscape and The Expanse and the new ones. Oh, my and, God. And Sorry. Stuff. Well, I'm going to calm down. This is one of the incredible things. So I've seen the first 10 episodes. They're so much fun. And what strikes me is that you've just surrounded yourself with incredible people in in the sci-fi world, like Doug Drexler, like not even mentioning the cast and everyone. There's just, I know that person. I know that person. I know that person. Just really passionate sci-fi people. Like, how did you go about wrangling all of these people? It was the round table? No, this was this was the, because I'd written for so many hundreds of hours of TV and produced so many hours. You know, I I knew a lot of the actors, and so um, for instance, Bob Picardo, when he saw the Sulu episode I did with George, he said, um, "I want to work with you." So I wrote a role specifically for Bob in Space Command. He'll be back again in the show, and he's also in another show we're creating called Sweet Haven, the one I'm doing with Rock Neil Bannon. Um, and then uh, let's see, Mira Furlan, I worked, and Bill Mumy, I worked with on uh, Babylon 5. I also interviewed Bill when I wrote The Twilight Zone Companion because he was in three, you know, some great episodes of The Twilight Zone. And um, let's see, uh, and Bill brought Bruce Boxleitner into the equation. And then um, uh, Ferran Tahir, uh, who was in JJ's Star Trek, he's the, the Starfleet captain who gets skewered at the beginning. <laughs> yes, um, the poor guy. He, yeah, he, uh, um, I somehow I came across him, cast him, uh, uh, Nichelle Nichols. Uh, I, we were doing a Space Command presence uh, booth at Comic-Con in San Diego. And I got a call from a friend of mine. He said, listen, I have a favor to ask. I thought, well, what, what is it? And he said, Michelle Nichols needs a place to sign photos. Would you be willing to let her use your booth? Said, yes. How can I say yes, but quicker? Of course. And so then, then I was talking to Michelle. I said, I'd like you to be in Space Command. And she said, sure. And um, and then Sean Kenny, who played Captain Pike in The Menagerie. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, in the um, chair. He's, he's in Space Command. I met him at conventions. And it and and in um you know we're um, um Armin Shimmerman's been a friend forever. Uh, when I saw the pilot of DS9, mm -hmm. I said I got to meet that guy, and and we became close friends. And uh, you know, and it just goes on That's like that. So Ethan, they must love the. Is there an element? But they they love the freedom of this being independent as well. Like yes. this feels yes. more yes. like yes. fun yes. than work. Yes. Well, also in Doug Jones, the way I got Doug was. Um, I won the Saturn Award one year, and I was at the event, and there was this tall, thin guy in this amazing Victorian jacket. Mm -hmm. So I walked up and him on the jacket, and it was Doug <laughs> Jones. And uh, at the time, I was writing a book, the book with Guillermo del Toro. So, you know, we started talking, and I took him to lunch a few days later, and he has this amazing, sensitive face. And I said, I'm going to write an episode for you. I'm going to write a character for you, and we're going to see that amazing face. Aww. And uh, and then he got cast in, you know, Shape of Water and, and Discovery and off, you know. But, he, but you're I right. he is always in prosthetics, like even yes. Discovery, <laughs> massive prosthetic. Yes. But he does have this beautiful, like expressive face that we never get I to mean, see. Yes. Exactly. If he, had, if, he had, if he had a face that looked like someone's rear end, you would <laughs> understand. Put a mask on there. Make him a Ferengi. But, uh, <laughs> he's really, he's got such a delicate and sensitive face. He's a wonderful His actor. eyes just express so, so much. It, it, it reminds me of like LeVar Burton. Like, it's great that Geordie has a visor and that's iconic. But you hid LeVar's eyes? Know, Whose idea was that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's funny. Uh, one, one friend of mine, he, uh, his kids were big fans of Reading Rainbow. And then one day he, he had a next gen on and they saw LeVar and they said, Daddy, why has LeVar got that thing over his eyes? 
And he said, well, oh, he's blind. And he said, LeVar is blind. <laughs> oh, first no. Years. <laughs> oh, no. So many questions that immediately pop yeah. up. That's amazing. But he hilarious. reads. Hilarious. He reads to me on TV. I, do yeah, just, exactly. I, I don't have a specific question about this, but I do think that, that Doug Jones and Robert Picardo in particular, their yes. performances in Space Command are just... Yes. They're just great. They're so, so good. Yeah. They're up there with anything they've done in Star Trek. And it just, I think that speaks to how passionate they are to be working with you and, and getting in on this project as well. It's so well, fun. When you, see them in, when you see them in scenes together in Space Command, they're so wonderful. They have such a chemistry. Mm. Oh, and, it's so uh, fun. It's, it's just amazing. And Mira Furlan, whom we lost during COVID, sadly, she got, she got, got West Nile virus. Mm. And uh, but I, but I worked with her in Babylon 5, and she was so remarkable back then. I thought, I'm going to write it. I, I've got to work with her again. So we, I approached her for Space Command. And I said, it, before we even rolled camera, I, I took her to lunch and I said, uh, I, I don't know much about your character yet, but I can tell you this. She's a xenoarchaeologist. She has a fiery but loving relationship with her grown daughter. And she is not defined by a man. Mm. And she said, I'm, I'm in. I'm in. Yeah, let's you know, do it. So, yeah. And there's yeah, a I great like line that. between her and Robert Picardo's character, which kind of yes. cements that really well. Um, yeah, I, I love how intentional that is. Have you yeah. had um, a situation yet where you've had a little 10-year-old come to sit on your set? <laughs> Actually, I'll tell you a very interesting story in that regard. And, and you know, when you mentioned the 10 episodes that you've seen, those were the webisodes. We yes. took the first two hours. We put, put the first two hours into 10 webisodes. But actually, Space Command is structured as two-hour stories that split down the middle as one-hour episodes. Oh, that's cool. So it's a 12-hour season mm -hmm. made up oh, of six, okay. six interlocking um, tales, right? So um, so in terms of a kid coming on set, uh, there was one point when I was doing the Kickstarter campaign and we were in, you know, shooting Redemption and so forth. And uh, um, one of the fans, it was taking a long time to finish the first two hours because it had 1,900 visual effect shots. And um, <clears throat> so... So someone on online was like saying, why is it taking so long? And someone else, someone else piped up and said, typed in, um, uh, you take the time you need, Mark. You, you're, you're doing a wonderful job. And I don't say this lightly because I'm just entering a hospice. So I contacted him. I contacted him. I said, suddenly ill. And he had a, a wife and a young daughter. And I said, okay, I'm going to do something. Uh, you can't put this out, but I'm going to do this. I'm going to send you the rough cuts of all of the episodes we've shot. So oh, you can wow. see them because he wasn't going to be around to see oh, the that's just heartbreaking and beautiful and, at the yeah, same time and, and then when we were shooting on our set for for the episode, an episode called forgiveness um i had her and her mom come on set her dad had passed away a few years ago and so she, we cast her in the show she and her <laughs> wow. mom had to play abducted pilgrims we gave her some lines and she was she was so happy this child that she was literally dancing on our oh, stage that's did you have a flashback to like your youth and how you felt when you went onto the set well it's you know it's magical that's one of the wonderful things about science fiction you know you're not just creating a story or characters you're creating a universe yeah and, and when i step onto my spaceship sets mm. which I have many now i've got a big alien spaceship i've got all these other human spaceships <laughs> so fun so cool. we got the giant robot we've got 30 spacesuits. i mean great so Yes, any, any just in the trash? Any, any space suits in the trash? I can sign uniform. And... I'll tell you. I'll tell you. My, <laughs> my friend Greg Jean, who built the uh, the city and Blade Runner and the mothership in Close Encounters, he was one day years ago working at MGM, and the bosses had told the uh, custodial staff to empty out one of the um, uh, rooms and and throw out everything. Right, one of the storerooms, and he looked on the dumpster, 
And there was the entire suit from 2001. No! I'm taking that home. Oh. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but that's how that's how it works. What a different mindset oh, we have. Like everything now it's, is instantly yeah. nostalgic and instantly on an auction I, or something. I did but... interrupt your thought though about the child on set yes. and if you had memories. So yes. I, I want you to finish that if that's okay. It's just magical, you know. And so when when people come on the set, we 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 often let our our backers, like our Kickstarter backers, can have walk on roles or whatever, and you know, or have a line, or wear a spacesuit, you know, all that stuff. And our investors, of course, are always invited to be part of anything we're doing. We we take them to Comic Con and take them to meals and all of that. And yeah, we welcome people in. And as my wife says, my wife and I write and direct and produce together. Um, my wife says to everyone who comes on the set. You can post, you can take photos. We are not, you don't have to sign an, an NDA. It's oh. like, we are, we are transparent. And that's so yeah, fun. Yeah. So she got to post with the eight foot tall alien creature and all that stuff. <laughs> that's brilliant. That's amazing. Now you did mention the sheer volume of visual effects in this yes. show. And there's a lot of them. And it's just yes. kind of stunning what you can do yes. nowadays. Yes. Um, yeah. So what was, what was it like pulling all of that together? Just visualizing and directing that stuff yeah. that's I get a lot of it is on a green screen or a blue screen no, or something like interesting. that. Interesting. It's the question yesterday. Someone asked me when when I did the live stream from my studio, which you can actually watch at Mr. Sci-Fi on YouTube, because um, I was giving a tour of all the spacesuits and the sets and all that. About seventy percent of the first two hours is entirely on sets that we built physically. Mm -hmm. So the the mining operation on Mars, the Paladin, oh, wow. Paladin corridor, um, the the you know the the mining uh, operation the um, series. We have something happening on a series. We have something something happening on a Titan. Mm -hmm. um, so we augment it with green screen, but we don't have it dominate, you know. Mm. And so it's a it's a balance that you strike. And and this, the second two hour episode, Forgiveness, has even more uh, physical sense. Wow. We, we built this gigantic alien spaceship, and uh, really uh, amazing, insane. But um, <clears throat> so but nineteen hundred visual effects uh, is more than Star Wars. I mean, it's 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 truly nuts. And um, so you have to find a lot of people who don't because we can't pay studio rates. So they have to, mm -hmm. but what we do is we give them a, a, autonomy. So I'll, I'll course correct if I need to, right. but I'll let them also have their their head. You know, this is your right. Yeah. And uh, well, you know <clears> how we, valuable yeah. that is. Yeah. So we get an amazing mm -hmm. talent pool. I mean, my friend Ian McCaig, who designed Darth Maul and Queen Amidala and Mark the the Mark what's his name Hulk. You know. Um, mm. Uh, mm -hmm. He's he's our character designer, so he designed the look. Oh, of oh wow! Doug Jones's look in Space Command and the uniforms and so forth. And you know, you find people who are just really some people are just starting out, but they're talented, and mm -hmm. other people are very established, but and they'll work for free or for you know what I can afford. Or so, the passion, the passion that yeah. they have. I I think no, it's, it's really nice when you get around anyone who wants to see what you do as yes. a as a a talent, whatever your talent is. Yes. I'll yes. never forget going in for a haircut once and just saying, I want you to just do what you want to do. And it uh, freaked him out. And I was like, well, you went, <laughs> you went to school for this. Like, does anyone yeah. ever just let you do what you want to do? And just, no. And sometimes yeah. there's yeah. a little direction needed, but yeah. for the most part, everybody kind of wants to be able to play in the area where they're yeah. confident. Yeah. So yeah. no matter what you do. Well, the fun, the fun part is that with Space Command, my wife and I, you know, I, and I'm sort of the lead dog on Space Command. It was my crazy notion and all that. But Elaine and I are very compatible. We've been together uh, 48 years, married for 46. We write wow. direct together. She's the best part of every day. And, um, you know, so 
uh, we're very compatible. She's a really good director. And so um, I have the strong visual sense in terms of, you know, with my art background and all that. But um, but it's just, you know, we, we basically, we write it, we cast it, we shoot it. Nobody has to, there's nobody above us in the food chain. And yeah. That's amazing. That's what a rare position yeah. to be in yeah. as well, yeah. because like we all want to have that creative, passionate job that we get yep. to live. Yes. And I think myself and Danae are really fortunate. We get to, to live that as well. Yes. But that the whenever you do something for money, it has that tendency to strip some of the creativity yes. away sometimes. Yes. So how beautiful is it that you get to re-inject some of from that the, into from it as the well. the people that are in the community who are like, no, I want to empower you to kind of helm the ship and yes. guide this mm. idea of a space for open creativity. I mean, the people yeah. that are going to, that are already around you that can mm -hmm. be then inspired by and have the ability to express through you is really fun. I know. Well, I just, mm. I just wrote a book called Greenlighting Yourself. Uh, there you go. Mm. It's available on Amazon and uh, because it used to be like when I started out um, as a writer in the late 70s, um, you know, if you wanted to reach a mass audience, the studios and the networks were the only game in town. If you wanted to do books, the major publishers were the only game in town. If you self-published, it was considered vanity press. It was not treated. Mm. It wouldn't get reviews or distribution. Now it's completely different. I mean, I have my own network on YouTube reaching millions of people for free. I don't have to pay yes and um and we crowdfunding like for instance we're finishing a crowdfunding campaign on kickstarter right now we're two days away from uh, from it from finishing our goal was sixty thousand dollars we've hit that target you know i want to i have to keep my eye on it so so no one pulls out at the last minute yeah. it's all or nothing you know right but, um, but yes but someone just contacted thing. me yesterday who i've never met and she wants she and her partner wanted to buy two shares in space command that's fifteen thousand dollars We've already got two distributors who want to take the show worldwide. Oh, so, you know, so it's like, That's but incredible. as a result, I could build this machine, and it was all of these decades, all the way from me being ten years old on the Star Trek set, to writing the Twilight Zone Companion, to writing for all these studios and networks. I learned, and and the mentors I had. I mean, we haven't even talked about that. You know, Harlan Ellison, Ted Sturgeon, Ray Bradbury. Mm. I mean, amazing people. George Clayton Johnson. You know, George wrote the first episodes of the original Star Trek that ever aired, The Man Trap. Um, I mean, mm. these were my mentors. They were, these were brilliant artists, brilliant creators, and very driven. They had a vision. And, um, and Roddenberry, you know, I worked with Roddenberry, too. So, you know, he, I didn't mm. know him well as a friend or mentor, but he was really an, a, a you know, genius, of yeah. course. Well, he very much, it seemed like he very much wanted to create this space, much yeah. like you are, where science people that are yeah. passionate about science fiction can come in and yes. write their stories and like yeah. TNG accepting fan submissions, yeah. which is just well, well, incredible. Also, if someone wants to build a spacesuit or if they want to build a, a creature or if they want to paint a wall in a spaceship, I mean, people are welcome to come be part of our world. My email is markzikri at gmail.com, M-A-R-C-Z-I-C-R-E, just like that. And um, they can email me at markzikri at gmail.com. And it's like that moment in Aliens where Ripley says, is there anything I can do? And the, the sergeant says, I don't know. Is there anything you can do? And she says, well, I can drive that loader. You know, you know, <laughs> we'll find a place for you. So the thing is, um, you know, um, Harlan, Ted Sturgeon, um, you know, all these great writers from Star Trek, they were self-made men and writers and, and women. Dorothy Fontana, DC Fontana was another one of the greats who, who was a friend and, and, and mentor. I'll tell you an amazing story. Um, 
I recently went to my 50th high school reunion. And the next day was my elementary school reunion. And I, and I knew all of those people, all of them. And many, many I hadn't seen for over wow. 50 years. <clears throat> so two of them I invited to come visit my studio. Now, they reminded me that when I was eight years old, my stepfather built me my own spaceship. <gasps> and, and it had like Army Air Force surplus controls and lights that lit up with, with switches and a telegraph key and a porthole with the earth from space that you could see off the record wow. album cover. And so kids from all over the neighborhood would come and I would give them tours of the solar system. And <laughs> so then so I invited two of these kids that I'd known back then to my studio. And they came <laughs> to my studio and they saw my spaceship sets and all of that. And they said, Oh wow! It's like what that is such a fun thing. That's amazing. It just gets into you somewhere. And they said you have followed your vision. You have stayed true to your to your vision and to yourself. That's beautiful, man. I I really appreciate the book that you mentioned too, because I feel like some of the things that we'll have um, are like just questions from people, like how do you get started on any number of things, and so. That's well, a really, mm-hmm. uh, that's a really cool. So it was called well, Greenlighting Yourself. Greenlighting right? Yourself. Well, the reason I wrote it was because um, for some years, my wife and I had been mentoring, um, in addition to the roundtable that I run, which has always been free. Uh, it used to be just in person and then with emails to the thousands of members. Now, during the pandemic, we made it Zoom. So now it's a com- combination of Zoom and uh, in person in LA. But um, but I, I realized a lot of the books and a lot of the common advice, the, st- the common sense advice was bullshit. You know, well, you just need to write a great mm. script. Well, how many other TV shows and movies you see are great? Clearly. Yeah, I'm, I mean, it, it assumes that everyone else is writing crap. Right. <laughs> it's, also, it's only you that can write well. But also, clearly, there's a ton of people who don't have great scripts who are still getting their work made. You know, yeah. and yes, and, even more worrying. They'll say, well, just get an agent. Well, that's not an easy thing, or just get a manager. You know, these are not easy things. Yeah. And so I wanted to write Green Lighting Yourself because when people say they're not letting me have my dream, that used to be true back when I started. You needed mm-hmm. studios, you needed networks. But now, one thing science fiction never predicted was that we would all have video cameras in our pockets, right? right. I mean, Star Trek came close, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> didn't get it yeah. quite right. I, I, I call myself on my tricorder. But um, <laughs> every day, every yeah, day. <laughs> right. But, but the thing is, now with crowdfunding, with with mm-hmm. YouTube, with um, with the internet, with with video cameras in our pockets. If you want to make a movie, if you want to make a TV show, you don't need to be stopped. Yeah. You know, you know, it's like you're stopping yourself. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, our team on Space Command literally is around the world. We have people on our team who are in the Dominican Republic, in Germany, everywhere. And, and also investors who are everywhere. And the fact that Netflix has legitimized uh, series in foreign languages. For instance, there was a, during the pandemic, <clears throat> all of our actor friends were stuck at home. So mm. we did a special bonus two-hour episode where the actors could film their, themselves. We would direct them long distance. We wrote yes. in and I wrote the script. And uh, it was a two-hour episode, bonus episode. And, and they're doing these little things to cameras, aren't they? Yes. As yes. Sometimes it's monologues. Sometimes it's two and three character scenes. There was, one, mm. there was one scene between a father and his daughter where they were sitting in the living room. And one of them was actually in Saskatchewan. And the other was actually in Atlanta. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> fun. We put them together. It's and, amazing. Um, but this was during the pandemic. And again, it was like to show that even with a pandemic, you can still create. You can still find a way. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. One of the, the burning questions I've got is with all of your the, the incredible influences that you've mentioned, 9, TNG, 
with all of that experience, what did you want to do different with Space Command? Like, what was it from all of that that you thought, I love that, this is what I want my show to do differently? Yes. I, one of the things I was very, very interested in was doing something that would be multi-generational. Because, mm. for instance, my father, his father, my grandfather, abandoned the family before my dad was born. My dad only met his father three times, and I never met my grandfather. So there's a ripple effect. There's It's like dominoes of this action leads to this action leads to this action down the generations. And so I was very interested in seeing that. So I created <clears throat> four families, and we jumped back and forth over a 200-year span in Space Command. So, for instance, Armin Shimmerman plays Robert Picardo's grandson in Space Command. Oh, okay. fascinating. Yeah, it's very fun. And uh, so, <clears throat> so I wanted to do that to show cause and effect. And in fact, one kid that we cast when he was 10, it's been, you know, we've been on this project for a few years now. He's becoming an adult now. So he's going to be the villain in the next episode we do <laughs> because, his, because he got screwed over as a kid in the first two hours. Oh, what a what an interesting opportunity. Yeah. Like you don't get that chance to branch that far ahead because it's yeah. like, do we get a new season? Are we what's the I, point of writing this I, now if we don't get a season I, three? Everything I write gets made, period. And and, and fortunately, even in my TV career, I'd say 95% of what I wrote got made. Very few scripts didn't get made. Um, mm. I was very lucky. I knew that what I wrote would get made. I mean, we all knew that Far Beyond the Stars was going to be one of the classics, you know. Well, that's a that's a great transition. Um how does that feel to have uh, to be the the kind of the story man brainchild behind one of the most iconic um episodes of deep space nine and i'm not even going to give it a synopsis because i'd like it to come from you because i know danae hasn't seen this episode a lot of the fans will but who better to describe far beyond the stars than than you sir yeah. well, <laughs> thanks well <clears throat> my goal in my career my perfect if someone said to me prior to space command what's your dream my dream would be to do one of the great Star Trek episodes, the handful. Mission accomplished. Right. Well done, right. sir. Yes. There, there are a handful <laughs> of great episodes. City on the Edge of Forever was like yes. it. The thing about City on the Edge of Forever that was so great was every TV show I'd ever seen before that, the hero saved the girl. It was just right. set in concrete. And in this episode, not only does he not save her, he throws her under a truck. <laughs> oh, goodness right quite literally yes, literally yeah and so uh -huh. and so what that told me was that in your life there will be things that you have to do because of the right thing to do but it'll break your heart and so star trek had the opportunity at its best to tell a profound truth from the real world that could change people's lives for the better one episode mm -hmm. of one tv show could do that whether it's walking distance on Twilight Zone or uh, Demon with a Glass Hand on Outer Limits that Harlan wrote. You know, um, so I wanted to do that. I wanted to do something that would be totally original with a profound truth from my heart. So, <clears throat> so far beyond the stars, uh, the, the original impetus for it, the inspiration was, you know, when I was watching Star Trek and Twilight Zone and Outer Limits, I noticed that all the writers who were writing on those shows were also writing the books I was reading, the science fiction mm. stories I was reading in novels. Ted Sturgeon, Harlan Ellison, Richard Matheson, Charles Beaumont, Ray Bradbury, Rod Serling. You know, and so first of all, it showed me that I could also do books as well as TV shows. But, <clears throat> but I also realized that 
these guys, these science fiction writers, started in the 40s and 50s, mainly the 50s, writing for the love of it, writing for the magazines, Galaxy, Astounding, Worlds of If, and uh, for a penny a word, five cents a word. And, and that world had never been shown to the larger science fiction public. The, the, there would be no Star Trek. There would be no Star Wars, if not for Ted Sturgeon and Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke and Robert Heinlein and Ray Bradbury and all of those guys doing it for the love of it, creating science fiction as we know it. So I wanted to show that world. And I also wanted to talk about why it matters, why science mm. fiction. The idea mm. that tomorrow is by envisioning it and work toward creating it. When Martin Luther King gave the speech where he said, I see a future where the, the ancestors of slave owners and the ancestors of slaves are sitting together at the table, you know, of, of, of brotherhood. He was telling a science fiction story. He was creating a, a world, a future that did not exist. And by speaking it, he helps to create it. So, so that was the initial idea. And Harlan Ellison had done a, a audio cassette where he just talked about what it was like to write back then. And he mentioned that often, they would get the cover art first, and he would try to race there on the day they got the art to describe a story that that cover. Oh, wow. And he said the, the most difficult one was this girl is sunbathing on a New York rooftop, and this giant grasshopper is looking over the rim of it at her. And he had to say, that's such a guy. I've got this great idea for that story. And um, so that was the idea that it's DS9 and Cisco's creating that future of of and other races coming together, a future of possibility that Star Trek, the original Star Trek, had presented us with, where fans, millions of people around the world, went to create a better world because they were inspired by Star Trek. It wasn't trivial. You know, Roddenberry did Star Trek. People forget Star Trek aired during the Vietnam War. It aired during the riots in the streets. Cities were burning. Race riots were happening. Martin Luther King was assassinated during the run of, of Star Trek. Uh, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. And... Um, so, but he still had the courage to say, we can have a future where people get along together, races get along together, there's respect mm. for other sentient beings. There's, a, you know, it's like a, a message of compassion it's, and it's, it's a big vision. And that takes... How hard must it have been to keep optimistic during those times and to well, keep that, both, that, that well, both Rod vision. Sterling and Gene Roddenberry were optimists. They were not fatalists. Um, Ray Bradbury once signed a photo uh, where he said, you know, Fahrenheit 451 is not dystopian. He said it's it's optimistic, it's hopeful because Montag succeeds. The books are going to continue to be read, mm. continue to be memorized. They are not defeated by that oppressive system. And so, so these mm. were men who had who saw a, a very bright future, but it wasn't a future that we were just handed. It would be a future that we would have to work for, that we would have to will into existence. And um, so, so then I uh, pitched. Uh, far Beyond the Stars, and to, to Hans Beimler, who he and Ricky Manning had been my bosses on a show I executive story edited called uh, Beyond Reality, while Trek was running. And uh, so I pitched it to Hans on DS9, and it didn't sell. And oh, wow. a year later, a year later, he had, I was sitting in my office at Universal when I was writing and producing Sliders, the fourth season of Sliders. I'd been hired to kind of get the show to work again because the third show, the third season of Sliders had just crashed and burned. It was just a mess. Mm -hmm. And so all those guys were gone except for one of the writer producers. And they just said, fix it. Sci-Fi Channel picked it up. They would <laughs> go back to Universal from Canada to fix it. So I get a phone call in my office. I'm, a, I'm writing two episodes of Sliders back to back. World Killer, oh, World wow. Killer and Slide Cage. 
And Hans says, I've got great news for you. And I said, oh, great. Tell me, Hans. He says, we're buying Far Beyond the Stars. I said, great timing, Hans. You know, it's like I'm writing these two. Yeah, thanks, buddy. So the only time I had to meet uh, with the writing staff on DS9 to basically block out the story, the beats of the story, was lunch. So I drove, oh, wow. I drove over the hill from Universal to Paramount, and we all got together at Nicodell's, which was a restaurant right by Paramount at the time. And it was the entire writing staff. So it was Ira Bear, Hans Beimler. Oh, wow. And, uh, gosh, who else was there? I mean, just everybody was there, all the writers. An Ron, Ron Moore, on and on. And uh, Brian Fuller was there. And um, uh, and we just started talking about him, batting it around. And <clears throat> and originally, I had thought of using Jake as the main character for the story because Jake was an aspiring writer. But but Iris said, no, let's make it Cisco. And that was great. And he said, let's make it about race. Let's specifically make it mm -hmm. about right, race. He's a black guy um, writing under a white pseudonym. And, does, and so he goes home to Harlem at night and... His friends are all black and they're saying, why are you writing a future in which we don't exist? And he finally has to have the courage to write a future, which is DS9, that, that's yeah. inclusive. And, and it was the first Star Trek episode that ever overtly, you know, addressed in yeah. that way, where, where Cisco is saying, I'm a black man, I am black. You know, the only one who said that was like Frank Gorshin is half black, half white, and Jesus Christ. But okay, so. Yes. Um, <laughs> but, um. So we bet within that that lunch, we nailed down the entire structure. Wow. And we all and they were all fans of the Twilight Zone. They all owned the Twilight Zone companion. They said, we want this to be as much like a Twilight Zone episode as possible. Mm. So when Cisco oh, goes back, when Cisco goes back, he's not Cisco. He's Benny. He's a totally different person. And 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 all the characters he meets, you know, who are Armin and Rene Obergenois. And the, the other idea I had was we'd get to see these actors. For the first time see what they look like without oh yeah well, that's incredible that's the big big swing because they it's this doesn't it, it kind of takes the entire crew out of the ongoing yes. story of deep space nine throws them back in time yes. none of them are aliens no. they're all human that's right so we're seeing michael dawn yes. Worf for the first yes. time out for, i think it's the first yes. time completely out right. of his klingon prosthetics and all of them yeah and Goldicar yeah. is there you know, as well yeah. as a human. And when you, when I watched it, I was very, very young, like 10, 11, 12, something like that. When I watched it, I, you just watch it as an episode. But then when you get older and you rewatch it, you're like, wait a minute. I know you people. <laughs> You've just taken yes. all of the, the prosthetics yes. off. Yes. It's, yes. it's such a big swing. It's yeah. so, but it's so integral to the story as well. Well, when I came up with the idea, I said to Armin, um, I'm going to write an episode where, you, where we get to see your face. It was the same thing I did with Doug Jones on Space <laughs> Command. Like, yes. you know, because I've written for Armin on many shows, actually, and uh, uh, he's he's great. And so but the idea was they are not Quark in the past. They are not the they are not Odo mm -hmm. in the past. They are different. The idea was that Benny, as the writer, he's gathering inspiration from the people around him. And but it's not one for one. We when we write a character, no. it's we transmogrify it. We join things together, bits and pieces. So um, so that was phenomenal. So. So I did the outline that weekend, and uh, I actually call, called Harlan, Harlan Ellison, to check. I said I called Harlan, and he was so embittered about against Star Trek. He never wanted to talk about Star Trek because oh, wow. of what happened on *Sea on the Age of Forever*. But mm -hmm. because we were friends, he was happy to talk to me. And he, I said, Harlan, <clears throat> back in the '50s, were there any black science fiction writers writing under a white pseudonym? And he said, not in science fiction, but he said there was a black writer named Frank Yerby who was a mainstream writer who was writing under a white pseudonym. You'd never see a photo of him on, on any of his books. 
Mm-hmm. So that's very interesting. And I asked him a few other questions about <clears throat> writing back then. And, uh, and then I banged out the outline, uh, came out really well that weekend and at that, you know, at my office at Universal. And, uh, um, and then I sent it in. It was really solid. And then Hans calls me and he says, well, uh, Ira and I are going to write the script. And I said, well, and that was shocking because at my, at my level as a producer, you're never cut off at story. Never, 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 never. You are, you're, mm-hmm. you're the authorial voice. And I said, well, wait a minute, let me, let me call Ira. So I called Ira. And Ira was concerned because he knew I was a producer on Sliders. I was writing two episodes back to back. Now, I knew that I had the bandwidth to write Far Beyond the Stars as well. But, but I said, Ira, look, I can do this. And he said, I'll make you a deal. If you quit your job on Sliders, I'll let you write, write the script of Far Beyond the Stars. Oh, goodness. I actually considered it for about 90 seconds. And then... Because we all knew, even at that lunch, we knew this was going to be one of the great Star Trek episodes. It, it, mm-hmm. None of us had any doubt. And um, and I thought about it, but I couldn't leave my my guys on sliders in the lurch. If I if yeah. I'd left, they would be so fucked. You know, <laughs> were, we were in production. You know, and, and yeah, you're right. In so the I called back Ira and I said, "Okay, okay, Ira, I'll uh, I'll, have, I'll you know, but." But I knew that Ira was a great writer. I knew Hans was a great writer. Yeah. I, and, and they had the outline, which I'd nailed down. So it was solid. There was I had no doubt they were going to do a phenomenal job. But you want to be in it. You want to be yeah. there to the well, end as a part of you. Must but be. here's the cool part. <clears throat> um, I actually, when I, when I wrote Slide Cage for Sliders, I actually wrote a role for Armin because uh, uh, he and I, I wrote the last episode of the Ron Perlman Beauty and the Beast that was ever commissioned, the last script. And, and Armin played a character named Pascal on that show before DS9. And we never met each other at that point. But, uh, but we became close friends once he was on DS9. And so I wrote a role in Sliders where there's this character. And at one point he says, my favorite show is Beauty and the Beast, not the Disney one, but the Ron Perlman one, which was sort of an in-joke that Armin would say this line because he had played that role. <laughs> so but then when they were on the stars was shooting. And mm. Armin had one overlap of days where he wasn't available and so we had to recast that role so if you ever watch oh no you ever watch that episode of slide sliders slide cage that line makes no sense but um of course not (laughs) but i had the experience the writer's dream of having two studios shooting two of my scripts the same week and i was on both sets the same day in the same clothes and took photos with both casts Oh, and that's that. incredible. So I went down to Paramount and they were shooting on that magazine set, the magazine office, mm-hmm. and all of the cast were there. And it and I took a photo of them. It's one of the most boring photos ever because it's just guys in suits. They're just in 50s clothes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And but, <laughs> but they were shooting a scene and Avery Brooks was directing it. That was Ira's idea and it was a great idea. Mm. And, oh, I um, think that's the only option, isn't yeah. it? That's, oh, it, was. it had it to was. be, yeah. It was, it was. And uh, But Avery keeps like glancing my way because Armin knows me, but Avery had never met me. So finally he says, everybody, you know, he says, cut. And they said, everybody take take lunch break. And then I walk up to him and I say, hello, Mr. Brooks. My name's Mark Zickby. I came up with this story. And he says, everybody, everybody stop. And they all stop. And he puts his arm around me and he says, say to them what you just said to me. And I said, incredible uh, Avery Brooks impression, yeah. by the way. And I said, I said, I came up with the story. And he said, he came up with the story. And everyone applauded. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. Wonderful, wonderful. wonderful. That's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Uh, did you, did you, were you, did you get to be there for the scene, his final yes. monologue at the end? Did you get to see yes. how? There's, there's an amazing story about that, which is well, when you're shooting on film back in the old days, uh, you always say, 
before you shoot a, a take uh, or a scene, check the gate, which means see how much film is left in the camera. Because oh. you have 10 minutes of film in a camera and you want to switch it out before any long scene. Right. right? But because Avery was so focused on ramping himself up and getting in the moment and getting in the character that as he was going through that scene, suddenly from because I was saying next to the DP and the camera, you hear it still sound like flap, 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 flap. And it's like the camera has run out of film. And he keeps going for another scene and it's astonishing performance. And then they have to go to him and say, um, we ran out of film midway through that take. And so he has to, and he's given everything he's got. Like that scene is incredible. He is pleading for his right exist. to exist yeah. and just to be. Yes. And yeah, that's, I, I can't even imagine being in that and room. And he had to do it again. And he did, of course. But uh, mm -hmm. but that was that was a moment, I, I must tell you. Now, my, my ending was somewhat different from the episode. My mm. ending, he has the breakdown, but then Armin's character stands up for him and insists that, that he says he'll quit. If, if they don't publish his Benny's story and they publish it. Because for me, the idea was that um, the story gets out into the world. It has an effect on the world. And so that was one difference. But um, rather than just breaking down and doesn't get published and goes to the asylum. But even so, yeah. it's such a brilliant episode. And a coda to that, a postscript, is um, 20 years later, they wanted to do something at the big Star Trek Las Vegas con to remember Far Beyond the Stars. Well, I was back in the green room as they were running the episode for the audience before the entire cast of DS9 and I and Ira. Oh, oh that's so fun. So here's the cool part. In the green room, there's a monitor that's showing the episode that's screening out in the audience, right? And normally, nobody's watching that. Normally, people are calling their agent or they're talking to each other or they're making themselves a bagel with cream cheese or locks. Far Beyond the Stars was playing the entire cast of DS9 and the entire cast of Star Trek, um, what the Discovery, were standing there watching it, and you could hear a pin drop. And when Jake's character gets murdered by the police, and Cisco says, "You killed that boy," and the cops don't give a shit. This is right in the middle of, of Black Lives Matter, and it was like, "Wow, we—it's a, a major studio saying cops kill black kids, murder them, and and they go back in the nineties. It's it's." It's phenomenal. And this is what Star Trek does so brilliantly. It tells truth to power. It tells, you know, it tells things. It, it, it's amazing. And so everyone was just, I mean, everyone was just like stunned at this episode. Oh, that's beautiful. The Discovery cast had never heard of it, you know, of course. And, uh, yeah. you know, it was, it was great. And then to go on in front of the audience and, you know, talk about it was great. Just great. Oh, that's just phenomenal. That's so. It, it is an episode we will eventually cover on the show, but it's one. It's just one of those episodes you want to be really careful with because yeah. it has such a weight behind yeah. it, and you you want to make sure the right voices are being heard with a with a subject matter yes. like that. Well, it's where everything came together just right. It was like Iron wanted he he wanted it to air during Sweeps Week when the studios and networks set their advertising rates, so they want a good rating, mm. a big rating. So he put a ton of money into it. It had so much in it. Harlem recreated. I mean, phenomenal. Oh. It's amazing that recreating Earth is the most expensive part of Star Trek. Yes. And that was all shot at Paramount. All, all Paramount in Los Angeles. Oh, that's incredible. It great. It's, it's breathtaking. It really is. What an awesome bit of history to be part of. Yeah, it really is. And there's so, there's so much that you've written on, too. There's so yeah. much that you've gotten to see produced. So it's like yes. we're just talking about a couple of like little 
little peeks into specific yeah. areas. <laughs> kind but... of one weekend yes. where you were writing but... something else at the same time. I'm, I'm the only writer who wrote for both Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5, and I'm also the only writer who wrote for both Smurfs and Friday the 13th series. And... Well, I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, Friday the 13th series and Smurfs, the characters always said one phrase more than any other, and that phrase was, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's but funny. Completely different context. Yes. That's, That's amazing. really funny. Yeah. I would have never caught That's that. That's beautiful. But, but, <laughs> but this is the cool thing. I'm still making this wonderful stuff. I mean, it's so great. Yeah. I'm. I mean, like for instance, today, what will I be doing? I'll be working on the new the script we're about to shoot, and I'll be working on the rough cut of the episode we, we just shot, and I'll be giving notes on the creature design of what we're about to shoot, and I'll be talking to my editor. He just texted me, "What do you want me to do today?" You know, I have bring me a sandwich. And, <laughs> yeah, and then I'm also giving notes on the new book I'm I'm I've just um, I'm just about to put out. So you know it just keeps going on. It's and, amazing. Uh, That's incredible. It's super fun. And uh, you know, and and in in the days to come, you know, uh, Veronica Cartwright's going to be in stuff we're doing. Barbara Bain. Uh, it just keeps going. Uh, You're Gates in McFadden, the soup. Wow. Gates McFadden, yeah, yeah. etc. Yeah, it just keeps going. It's fun. That's incredible. Well, I, I don't want to keep you from your life for too much longer, but I do want to dip into TNG and First Contact because First Contact such a special episode as well. Yes. And before we talk about that, I just want to mm. mention two things. One mm. is anytime you guys are in LA, I will give you a tour of my studio. You're welcome to be part of our world. Oh, thank you so much. Whatever you'd like. Yes. And also anyone who wants to be part of my roundtable, just email me at marksickby at gmail.com. We meet every Thursday. It's um, thousands of members around the world. It's just, and you can be just starting out. You can be accomplished. Wow. There's no judgment of who has talent or who's who's deserving. If you come with a good heart, you're welcome. That's beautiful. Oh, that is that. incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I think yeah. we're booking some flights to LA next week. Yes. 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 We're, we're, yes. We'll be looking into that quickly. <laughs> yes. But in terms of first contact, I'll talk about that. That's the episode, not the feature. One has to always say that. Because, yes. You know, yes. <laughs> I, I mean, first contact is top tier. First yeah. Contact, the episode, is still incredible. It's still yeah. such an important episode. Well, see, there's a lesson I learned from Harlan Ellison, which was very important. Harlan, of course, wrote what I think is the greatest episode of the original Star Trek, City on the Age of Forever. Mm -hmm. Nothing like it had ever been done before. Phenomenal episode, brilliant. And, uh, and Harlan, at that time, ran into a writer he knew. And the writer was chortling because he had just sold uh, a story uh, to Star Trek and he had basically ripped off a movie, pitched it as a Star Trek episode. They hadn't recognized that it was ripped <gasps> off from a movie, and they bought it. And it was Flight oh, of the no. Phoenix. There was a movie called Flight of the Phoenix. And Great it was movie. Great. And it was made into the episode Galileo 7, which isn't a bad episode. Oh, no, I've never made that connection. Right. Harlan, but Harlan said to the writer, he said, you not only cheated them, but you cheated yourself because you had the chance to do something no one had ever seen before yeah. from your heart that could have moved an audience, that could have, you know, changed the world. And you do it. And I always took that to heart. And, I, and so I've always, everything I've done has always, I always bring my A game. I never uh, slum. You know, I, mm -hmm. I never look down on things. I always say, how can I make this meaningful to me? And uh, so <clears throat> the great thing about Star Trek Next Gen, when I was story editing Friday the 13th series, we were uh, on the Paramount lot. And uh, this is just before Next Gen aired. So they were shooting, but it hadn't aired yet. So I would go mm -hmm. to the dining room for lunch, and the entire cast of Next Gen would be sitting at a table eating lunch in costume. Oh, amazing. Yes. And in makeup. <laughs> I remember one time, one time Jonathan Frakes 
got up, I guess, to make a phone call or use the men's room. And being an actor, he was kind of preening and aware that people were looking at him. And he mm -hmm. walked face first into a pillar. Oh, so <laughs> no. That's the most Riker thing he could have possibly done. Yeah. That's right. beautiful. Yes. But, um, <laughs> but in terms of when I was pitching to Star Trek, and I pitched, here's what happened with Star Trek Next Gen, because I knew I wanted to write for it. Absolutely. absolutely. Oh, of course. And, uh, but the problem was that first year was very, very, very tumultuous. Mm -hmm. And so I would go in, I would pitch to a producer. They would want to buy one or more of the stories I was pitching, and they would be fired before they could buy my, my, my script. So this happened with Bert Armas. It happened with David Gerald. It happened with Tracy Ooh. Torme, on and on. And so, but, but every time I was pitching Star Trek, I would, take, I would clear the slate for two weeks and just work on ideas. And I would generate mm -hmm. about ideas. And uh, then I would boil it down into maybe four or five fully worked out storylines and then maybe uh, some paragraphs and then, you know, so forth. And I would always pitch the first four or five develop, fully developed stories, beginning, middle and end. And they would always want to buy at least one or, or more of those. And so um, but because these producers kept getting fired. <laughs> I, um, Listen so, to the last guy. He knows. Yeah. But, but the thing with Star Trek was I saw that there was this great opportunity to come up with something, first of all, that I'd never seen before. Secondly, that was deeply meaningful. And thirdly, that fit the Star Trek mythos, but had never mm. been part of it yet. And that was the cool thing. It's like, I can expand the envelope, but still be playing in that universe. Yes. Right? So you don't, you don't break it, but you just stretch it. Yes. And, um, and that was a great challenge, a great creative challenge, because I'm still doing on Space Command. I'm always saying, what have I not, have I not seen before? What will make this yeah. and, um And I'm very proud of Space Command in that same way. But with First Contact, here's what happened with that. Um, I went, I'd, I'd spent my two weeks, I worked on my full storylines and my and my paragraphs. And, and then I, at the back of my little documentation, I would have like one-liners. And I never, mm. ever, ever pitched my one-liners because I never had to get that far because the first four or five stories one would sell. And I'm not just talking about Star Trek. I'm talking about any show I pitched to. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so, because um, this was the great era of freelancing and being on staff, you could do right. both. I mean, I was frequently writing for multiple shows simultaneously. And in fact, I wrote two scripts for two different shows in one week. And <laughs> uh, it was Space Precinct and Forever Night. And I wrote 10 pages of one in the morning, would have lunch to clear my palate, yes. and then write 10 pages of one in the afternoon. I wrote that, I did that for six days, and at the end of six days, I had two 60-page scripts, and they, <laughs> both got, they both got shot. They both got made. Oh, so, that's amazing. Back, back to first contact. Okay, so, so, these, so it's Michael Pillar, and mm -hmm. I, didn't know I, was, I didn't know I was his second cousin, nor did he at that point. <laughs> so, uh, but he had pulled together this amazing writing staff, and so, so they schedule it, Get a load of this. They schedule it the day before Thanksgiving at 5 p.m. Okay. Oof. Nobody wants to be there. Everyone wants to leave and have their mm -hmm. Thanksgiving and right. So it's a terrible slot. It's really dead. No one's listening. <laughs> I go in. So I go in. Uh, and it's not just Michael Pillar taking my pitch. It is the entire writing staff <gasps> on two sofas that no come pressure. The pillar is at this big executive desk, and then there's two sofas with you know, Ira Bear and Ron Moore yeah. and Ellen Braga and Melinda Snodgrass and all of them. And uh, and so I start pitching and uh, and I'm standing and they're all sitting. Right. I'm standing and and uh, and I'm pitching. And the first four or five stories I pitch, the full ones they like. But for various reasons, they're either doing something similar or they can't. Yeah. Do it. 
there's always, they, they shoot them down. So they, say, they just say, keep going. So I then get to my paragraphs. And again, it's the same thing. And, uh, and they like what I'm coming up with. They realize I know what I'm doing, but nothing's, nothing's that, right? Mm. And Ira Bear, and I'm going like uh, 20, 30 stories, you know, bang, bang, bang. And uh, I'm, I'm standing there for about like an hour or two. And, uh, and Ira Bear says, this guy's amazing. We should just put him in, he's a story machine. He said, he said <laughs> we, should, we should put him in a room and just have wide pages out, right? Yes. Under, under the door. It's like, great. Okay, so, and I'm by then I'm, of course, in a total cold sweat, right? So finally, I get down to my one sentence, which I've oh, never, no. never done. And I say, okay, okay. And I say, look, you've done stories with the prime directive where the enterprise cannot reveal itself to cultures below a certain technological level. And you've done stories about cultures that are above the prime directive, like mm -hmm. the Romulans and the Klingons, where we can just be who we are. But you have never done a story where the prime, where culture reaches a technological level where the prime directive shuts off and our guys are sent to make first contact. There was this hush and their eyes lit up and that was the story they had never heard before. Oh, wow. It was like, wow. So then um, we, uh, you know, it was, uh, they said, we, we have to run it by the powers that be, but, um, you know, we really like this. And so, I think the, the day, as soon as everyone's back on work, I guess on Monday, they called and said, yeah, we're buying it. Oh, and, that's fun. Yeah. And that and was now that. you've got to deliver on it. You've got to write the rest of it. You've got to get, <laughs> get through the challenge. rest of the story. We all agreed. The idea was it's day the earth stood still, but the flying saucer is the enterprise and the guys yes. are our guys. And so it's to see our guys as aliens, you know, as yeah. It's yeah. so beautiful. And the, the wrestling they have to do. So what happened with that one was, um, I had just come back from Thailand. I'd done a pilot for NBC that we shot in Thailand. And all of a sudden, I wasn't, my, I wasn't feeling well. My, my weight dropped to 122 pounds. And, um, and my mind wasn't working. It was like foggy. And I was tired all the time. And so um, I couldn't pull this, this thing together. I knew what it needed to be. So finally, I just said, look, I just can't, I can't do it. And finally, they, you know, they never diagnosed what it was. I, but I started exercising. I got a trainer. And I was able to, through exercise, to get well again. Mm. So they were developing for, um, uh, you know, the, the first contact, you know, I, I didn't, I'd done the outline, but then again, it was like with, with far beyond stars, but for different reasons. And so then when they were about to do the script, uh, I called Michael Piller and I said, look, I was ill. That was what's going on. Let me take another shot at this thing. And he said, well, I've never had that. I've never done that where I've cut mm -hmm. someone off at, at that story. And then they come back in to do the script, but uh, sure you bet. Why not? You know, we still didn't know we were cousins and, uh, <laughs> weird hollywood but um uh i go in and again it's the whole writing staff and i worked out the entire storyline and um soup to nuts and i told i told the whole story beat for beat and michael paused and he said it's a good story and it works but it's not the story i want to tell mm. so okay fair enough fair enough i rolled the ball down the aisle you know fine. yeah that was fair so i went on to all the other stuff i was writing and then the episode got written. It was a, a like a gangbang. It was a whole bunch of writers on it mm. from in, from the writing staff. And then uh, and then uh, they you know the writers guild arbitrates the credit, and I was going to get the story credit, of course, solo story mm. credit. And so then once the episode aired, an assistant from Star Trek called me from TNG, and this is DS9 was already up and running, and he called me said, "Were you ever a judge at a Writers Digest contest?" <laughs> and I said, "No. Why?" And he said, someone is suing us, claiming 
that they had submitted the story to a Writer's Digest contest and <gasps> that we must have stolen it. And so I said, well, no, I never I never was a Writer's Digest judge. And they said, oh, well, that's no. good. That's that's good. And I said, well, just just for curiosity, how many Star Trek episodes are sued? And, you know, between Next Gen, DS9, all, all of them. them. And, yeah, he said he said all of them. Every yes. Episode, there's a lawsuit because they had an open door policy. Right. They would inspect Star Trek scripts, which no other show did. And when this is why. Yeah. Well, when I was on sliders, we were forbidden to, yeah. uh, to don't leave. even open the mail. Well, the funny <laughs> thing is that when I was on sliders, I gave an interview and they said, are you open to spec scripts, spec slider scripts? And I said, no, we absolutely are not. We're forbidden by universal legal. So of course they printed the interview. Oh yeah. We love spec scripts. Send them along. Send them along. Jesus oh, Christ. No. Oh no. Drama llamas. Do you Very remember funny. what your first contact outline was that didn't get that didn't get made? I know that's a big ask. It's a long by time then, ago. By then, by then, we had decided that it was going to be a, a, the planet sends its first, um, you know, probe into space. It's warp drive, and mm. and uh, that's the the warp drive signature is what turns off the planet. Right. Okay. And the idea would be that our guys would come there and it'd be revealing the that there's a larger universe. You know, mm. it, I don't remember the the, the beats and. Um, I, some someday I'm sure I'll come upon, upon that outline. I've got hundreds of yeah, Star Trek little notebook buried that. somewhere. You know, there's I have so many Star Trek and DS9 stories. I should I should publish them sometime. But um, I don't remember at all. But the, but that's that episode was again so a great. Funny. It was a really good episode. But I'm so glad it I got on the stars as well because that's the gem. That's that's it's the it's the go-to episode. Like it's not by any means an introductory episode to Star no. Trek. But when you talk no. about Deep Space Nine it's the one that gets held up. So yeah, yeah that's what an yeah. awesome part of history. Yeah. Well, as a, as a little epilogue, my our good friend Jonathan, our colleague, will not forgive us if we don't just do a little minute on Friday the 13th. <laughs> sure. So oh, how, did, yeah. how did Friday the 13th how come about? Gonna, so? How are we going to... What's the segue from Star that, Trek like, to that? Yeah, what's the, what's the good segue? <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, speaking yeah. of first contact yeah. in your dreams, I don't know. <laughs> but Far Beyond yeah. the Stars is a dream. Yes. Freddie yeah. Freddy could have turned up in Far Beyond the Stars. Nobody's red hair. Um, so, okay. So the thing with Friday the 13th, because again, I was, I started in animation. Uh, my friend Michael Reeves brought me into animation when I was like 22 and I uh, became the god of animation. I was, I was writing pretty much every show. Yeah. Uh, I was writing for it and, uh, you know, commanding three times what the normal going rate was and all that stuff. But that wasn't my dream. My dream was to write for live action. My dream was to write for Star Trek. So I wrote a spec live action script. I then got hired to uh, develop Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future. And I insisted they hired Joe Straczynski, who never had done live action. That, and those were the producers he then did Babylon 5 with. And so that was how that went. But at the same time, I was hired on Friday the 13th, Friday the 13th of the series as a story editor. The writing staff was three people. The entire writing <laughs> staff. It was a 22 episode order. Uh, 11 would be freelance. And uh, 11 would be written in-house, but we were going to be doing page one rewrites on all the freelance scripts, too, because they weren't living and breathing the show every day. Mm. <clears throat> when I heard it was called Friday the 13th the series, I thought, well, if it's just going to be slasher stuff, I'm not going to do it because I have no interest in that. But when I realized that it was much more like a Twilight Zone kind of show, this is before X-Files. So this was like these two cousins and their and their older friend just, you know, decide to undo what their uncle, their late uncle had done because he'd sold all these cursed antiques. With, that's a deal with the devil. So we search them out. We lock them up. It's, so the, they are a force for good. So I said, when I came on the job, I said, look, our villains can be perverse, but we must not be. Mm. So it mustn't be sadism against women, sadism against, against the helpless. It, you know, right. So 
So it was Bill Taub and me. He was a writer who came off Hill Street Blues, and he was my boss. And then above him was the, the, the you know the nephew of the head of the studio, who was the ostensible showrunner. He was like in his twenties, and uh, um, and we were shooting it in Canada, but our writing uh, staff was on the Paramount lot, and which was a dream come true because Paramount. I mean, mm. I love I love the studios. I love the back lots. Being able to walk in that world is just oh, I so can't even I imagine it straight yeah. away. Yeah, uh, you're like you can picture it. I'm like I can't even imagine it. <laughs> it's, great. it's great, but so then, so then we uh, started working up episodes. Uh, you know, I and I wrote wrote a bunch of them, and then uh, uh, we had every day we would have a, a freelance pitch in the afternoon, and I noticed that all the writers who were coming in were white males. So I said to the staff, I said, look, let's shake it up. Let's have different races, different ethnicities. Let's have women. You know, and what I found was that the racism and the sexism were not deeply ingrained. You just needed somebody to say, let's do it differently. Mm -hmm. And so they started sending in black writers. They started sending in women. We started buying them. For many, for many of them, it was their first sale. It went, many of them went on to very, very lucrative careers in television. And, uh, and so we, you know, buying those scripts. And so I wrote a whole bunch of them. And it was fun to have scarecrows after people and, you know, <laughs> all that stuff. And, you know, I wrote one that was a satire on how Jerry Seuss, Jerry Schuster and Jerome Siegel got screwed over with Superman, where their rights got taken away <laughs> by the publisher. And and I so I did uh, one where that superhero comes to life and starts killing people. And uh, and the, the the creator of the of the of the uh, comic book was Ray Walston. And mm. I grew up with my favorite Martian. And so Ray Walston was like oh. one of my heroes. Oh. So again, so that's one of the great things about writing for TV because you get to work with so many people you grew up idolizing. And so, and then, oh. then, then the Writers Guild strike hit back then in mm -hmm. 86. That was 86, and it ran for six months. And then when I came back, there was no job <laughs> anymore, <laughs> which was fine because I was the story editor on season one, and it was I, I loved it. It was great fun. Oh, that's so much fun. Jonathan, thank you. I can hear him wherever he's, he's now sleeping saying yeah. thank you so much. <laughs> he would talk about it. That's He, he loves yeah, it. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, uh, just to just to wrap up, thank you so much for your time. We could do this, I think, for six hours. But yeah. I think we'll, we would love to have you back on the show to do this again. Anytime. Anytime. What's next for Space Command? Where can people find you? Where can they support the show? And yeah, how to get involved with the world of Mark? Exactly. Well, the you can go to um, Mr. Sci-Fi. It's Mr. Period Sci Hyphen Fi Mr. Sci-Fi on YouTube. I, I have a, I regularly post there. I, I, you can watch Space Command there. Um, the, the, there's a link to our Kickstarter campaign, which is called Space Command Forgiveness Post-Production. And we have two more days to go, so you want to jump on there right now rather than wait. Do it right now. Uh, Stop the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now. And uh, <laughs> marksigfree at gmail.com. And uh, if you want to be part of my roundtable, email me, and I'll send you the Zoom link, or you can come in person and eat at Denny's. And that's a uh, oh. bit of, you know, that's I'm all for is. Denny's. Let's yeah. do it. <laughs> plane tickets from springfield yeah. to you 650 yeah. bucks denny's yes. meal priceless yes, yes. <laughs> but, but, um, but also you know as i said you know on our kickstarter campaign you can have walk-on roles you can wear a space suit you can be an alien it's it's that's amazing but it's been an absolute pleasure um i hope you guys all enjoyed listening to this i i my mind is just melting from this incredible sci-fi soup um well thanks for listening everybody thanks for downloading thank you mark yeah and live long and pots for everyone thanks for listening want to connect with the show our hailing frequencies are always open through captain's pod at cinemasins.com like comment and subscribe on your podcast player of choice and be sure to visit cinemasins.com 
I am a happy camper. It is good to see you too. And I'm a big fan of Cinema Sins. I've been a subscriber forever. So uh, that's so that's how I heard that you guys were going to do the Captain's Pod. That was that's, that's amazing. What what? Yeah, you, you guys are my favorites. I, I ah! you know, I, yeah. That's, that's so, so cool. Well, wow, that's that's a lot of fun. When you guys did the trailer on the Star Trek movies, and you said we guys are Trekkies, we love this stuff, and we're going to do Captain's Pod. I yeah. called my assistant immediately and I said, get in touch with these guys. I want to be interviewed by them. I want to be on their show. Ah! Like, oh, right? That's incredible. <laughs> what what a privilege. I mean, I mean, coming up with Captain's Pod was kind of an accident because we just found out, hey, there's a lot of people yeah, on the team that are like Star Trek. And it doesn't surprise me that there's a lot of Star Trek fans that have a very similar yes. viewpoint and kind of yes. way of looking at the world. So it's so fun when when yes. those streams overlap. And we tried not to be too oh, harsh we, on yeah, Star we, Trek. We ride that line of <laughs> loving it, and then we also just can't help but be a little nitpicky people. Oh, that's sure. We can't help it. <laughs> yeah, yeah there's, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff. Oh, that's incredible. Star Trek. That's so fun. I remember one day I went into a pitch to Michael Piller on Star Trek Next Gen, and he said, uh, I've got a really bad cold, so keep your distance, you know? So it's like, okay, great. <laughs> sure. I'm just happy to be in the same room as your virus. That's yes. right. I'm happy to be in here. Yes. You know, yes, if you yes. catch something from them, you'll get better at what you do. Just like, give me, give me that virus you've got. The really weird thing about Michael Piller was that uh, it was only after I wrote, um, you know, for Star Trek Next Gen that we found out we were uh, second cousins. And uh... <laughs> that's amazing. What? That's so funny. My grandmother's name was Agnes Piller. And uh, so we were actually at my uncle Adolf's funeral when I was like 13, both Michael Piller and I without knowing each other. Well, That's amazing. Okay, so we're going to have to just postpone this and do a little arc. Uh, we're going to have to do the, the, the tree, the genealogy tree <laughs> to see how we're related. How yes. far back should we have to go? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Considering Ian is from England, we're going to be at this for oh, a while. Oh, goodness. <laughs> I, I'm still a little bit flabbergasted that you already know CinemaSins and you found out th about Captain's Pod through that. So that's really, really exciting. Oh, no, you guys are great. I mean, I, I, I just love what you do. And uh, it's, <laughs> you know, I mean, again, I, you know, I, I always tell people that my favorite network is Ute because it has such cool stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, you can find you can watch live TV shows from the 50s. They're ra super rarities. You can find all sorts of stuff. It's, it's so crazy. Yeah, I love it. There's a whole genre of people who just upload their old VHS home yes. cassettes. Yes. Things that you would, and then you'll find the TV shows that just happen to be recorded. And that's the only reason we still have them. And it's just fascinating. It just blows my mind because back in the day, we were just, the pro, the studios would just delete tapes. I was like, no one's yeah. going to want to watch this again. So we'll just copy over all of the, yes. all of the stuff. Oh. The fastest yes. route to a career is the Clarion Writers Workshop. It's, it's, the leading, it's the leading science fiction writing workshop in the country. It started my career. Basically, you go there for six weeks. Each week, a different famous science fiction writer comes and lives in the dorms with you. It's a 20, 25 students. You write like crazy. Virtually all of the major science fiction writers of the last 40 years have come out of Clarion. So um, I okay. sold my, my first short story through Clarion. I was taught by some of the giants of science fiction. and That's was, amazing. Yeah, I was 19 years old when I went to Clarion. And that really set things cool. will they let my six-year-old come with me <laughs> yes 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 okay. I, i'm requesting a 25-day leave of absence from <laughs> yeah. no, no 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 i'm <laughs> requesting it first uh i'll tell you one one story that ted sturgeon told me about the original star trek 
he wrote two great episodes, Shore Leave and Amok Time, which is the great one. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ted told me, he said, uh, I, I, you know, he said, uh, they brought me in to see the rough cut. And he said, I never, ever pulled my weight as a, as a writer. I never pulled rank. You know, I never insisted on mm-hmm. anything. And he said, but they had taken out the one line in that episode that was the reason that I had written it. Oh, and I said, no. And I, said, I said, you must put that line back in. And they did. And that's where Spock says to the other suitor, he says, you'll find that, that having may not be as, as wonderful as wanting, you know, that whatever that line is. That's the whole point of the episode. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, that that's brilliant. Back in, yeah. I, that, that is the... It's that episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 